The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. I'm Scott Wapner, and you're listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast, the most profitable hour of the trading day. We record this live weekdays at 12 Eastern. Listen in. Welcome to the Halftime Report. I'm Scott Wapner, front and center this hour, the final stretch of 2020. What the best month for the Dow since 1987 means to your money over the last month of the year and beyond. We debate that today with our investment committee. And joining me for the hour are Joe Terranova, Pete Najeri, and Bryn Talkington is here, the managing partner at Requisite Capital Management, Degas Wright, the chief investment officer of Decatur Capital Management. Good to see everybody. Let's go to the wall, take a look at stocks, see where we stand. Dow's given back about 400 today. Still best month for the Dow. As I said, since 87, the S&P 500 is up 10.5% this month, giving back about 1% now. The Russell 2000, the biggest ever monthly outperformance for small caps. The Russell up 18% this month. All right, Bryn, that sort of sets the scene for us. Your note today to our producers, to me, says everything. You say, yeah, we're overbought. The market's technically ahead of itself, 200-day moving average, 50-day moving average, but we'd be buyers anyway. Yeah, you you summed it up perfectly. I mean, I think so. To give some perspective around that, you know, as uh, when you're looking at at technicians and technicals, right now the 200-day moving average um, over 90% of stocks in the S&P are over their 200-day moving average. When that number gets above 80%, that's typically a time to take a stand back as a trader. As an investor, though, as we are, you want to take a look at that and say, hey, if we get a sell-off, which I'm sure we'll get because that's just the price of admission for being an equity investor, we absolutely want to be in stocks because what are your alternatives? cash or bonds and both of those offer you no yield and so we also think that next year once we get control of this vaccine when we get control of this vaccine and we have you know unemployment we have fiscal stimulus unemployment come down fiscal stimulus injected into the system and the economy improving i can't imagine not only will stocks go higher but earnings probably go higher and then you have multiple expansion yeah so we'll definitely be buyers on the dip all right pete so do you think we're ahead of ourselves at all like like some are, are wondering i mean bryn says it but says I'm, I'm buying anyway tony dwyer today says there is quote excessive enthusiasm in the market cities tobias lefkovich quote either the market is anticipating an even stronger 2021 profits outlook possibly tied to rapid inoculation-driven recovery and continued corporate cost containment, or the S&P 500 may be ahead of itself in the near term. What do you think? Yeah, I would say that it absolutely is ahead of itself, but that doesn't mean it can't continue, Scott. I mean, the reality is these markets, we, we overshoot to the upside all the time. We overshoot to the downside. We've seen that all throughout 2020 already, some of these overshoots in different directions. And 
You know what? It, it, it creates opportunity. Now, what I mean by that is there are times where it depends on if you are looking at the markets by what particular measure. And, and specifically when I say that, I'm, I'm talking about specific sectors. What's leading, what's not? What are the areas where you still have some room maybe to the upside and what areas have probably already made that move and there's much, much more probably downside in front of it? But I think the reality is we're all looking at this. And not too many weeks ago, Scott, we actually closed the market um, with the volatility index over 40. And here we are now basically ready to break very close to 20. So the reality is we are in a very interesting market right now. It's been a very great trading market because the movement back and forth has been absolutely extreme at times. And then at other times, we've paused a little bit. Well, we've had an extreme move in November. This November has been an unbelievable move to the upside. It's been spectacular. Some of the areas of the market that rarely get talked about are really some of the areas that are really pushing the markets. Now, we, don't, we do talk about energy materials and financials and all the rest of it. But how about the run that we've had recently out of biotech? So when everybody says, well, it's growth or value, I, I would say that it's quality. And what quality names I think exist in biotech is the reason why biotech has made the moves to the upside. And of course, obviously, with the focus on vaccines and everything else. But you take a look over at the XBI and the IBB and you'll see what I'm talking about. There have been different parts of the market that have been leadership roles. And that's a good thing. That's a healthy thing. The fact that it's not always just technology or the semiconductors. Sometimes it's biotech. Sometimes it's financials. But over the last couple of weeks, the energy space has been absolutely on fire. And it doesn't mean that it has to stop just yet. Best month for energy ever, by the way, to your point, yeah. Pete. And as you're talking about <laughs> the VIX and potentially breaking 20, I'm thinking about Tom Lee again. I mean, does Tom Lee have to be right about everything all the time? Tom Lee was talking about the VIX going under 20. Here we're on the doorstep, mm -hmm. and that that's just another confirming buy signal in the market. Degas, Tom Lee also says we should not view 2020 pre-pandemic highs as a ceiling for his so-called epicenter stocks. Strong year, likely to see a strong finish. There's a lot of bullishness out there. Are we overdoing it, or is this how it should be? Well, Scott, I think what's happening to the market, and, and Pete talked to this, is that we received during the month of November, what we all thought would have been, would have occurred over one or two or three months in first quarter 2021. So I think what we are seeing is that it's being priced in. The recovery has been priced in during the month of November. Now on the upside, we're still going to see some, some movement on the upside, but I don't think it's going to be as strong as November. So going forward, I'm agreeing with uh, Tom in that we really got uh, a lot of in November. I don't think we're going to get as much in December or January. I think this is going to give us a time to really start repositioning our portfolios and start focusing on infrastructure stocks because those are doing well. Industrials, energy, transportation have done really well during the month of November. I think they're going to continue to do well going forward. Joe MKM says this speaks to a market that can melt higher. They're talking about a contraction in declining volume, supported by volume in advancing stocks. So they're bullish. Mike Wilson is out today. Our friend from Morgan Stanley, quote, we expect a V-shaped recovery to continue. You know, I guess there's no other place to be than positive going into the end of the year, because that seems to be where the train is. And that's where everybody's on it. Well, Let's not let six and a half hours uh, of today's trading, which probably looks a little bit ugly, um, negate what has really been an unprecedented month in the month. Uh, introducing on four consecutive Mondays positive news as it relates to the vaccine, seeing new strategies begin to work in the market, small caps with 
enjoying a historic month. And let's not forget, to Pete's comments, the largest sector within small caps would be health care. Equal weighted strategies coming back once again. These, these are all setting the table for what looks like in 2021, 2021 would be very positive performance. But I would say this. The one element about this month that I dismiss is that there needs to be this dramatic rotation out of established growth into valued names. I disagree with that. Apple still gave you 9% during the month. Your fangs collectively on average still gave you 7%. The value growth gap really only closed by about 4%. So looking forward, Scott, I think it's important to understand, are you finally able to get capital coming into the equity market from fixed income? And that's the one thing we really didn't see in the month of November. When you're able to realize the possibility where capital comes out of fixed income, treasury yields move higher, then this broadening, then this rotation towards value, I think that comes into play. But let's not take the capital out of established growth and put it into value just yet. I don't think that's the right strategy. I mean, but that's what the street's talking about, though, right? Uh, I mean, B of A today talks about a continued rotation into value, cyclicals, small caps. Uh, emerging markets. Pete, is there is there a reason not to be bullish? Well, I, you know, it's great that we have all this potential vaccines out there, Scott, but I mean, I think that is really obviously what's been talked. Joe just talked about it. every single Monday, it seems like in the month of November, we had a different vaccine potential that was coming out, whether it's Moderna and Pfizer and AstraZeneca. I mean, you go through the whole list, but the reality is it's not here yet. And, and when will it be, Scott? And, and when, you know, I know that it's right, out, right in front of us, but the reality is it's not here yet. And we're trading as if it's already here. And markets are always looking forward, so it makes a bit of a sense. But you know, are we a little bit bullish, uh, a little too bullish because of that? Probably, because it's going to take some time. And not only is it going to take some time, but we're going to have to see how, how comfortable people are about that and what that does truly mean in terms of workforce. Are people really going to be going back out? How big of a hybrid combination are we going to be seeing into the future? I think there's a lot of different things where there's a lot of questions. And where there are questions, that does bring in some volatility in the market, Scott. So I don't think it's an absolute layup. I'm not, Bryn, asking that question rhetorically either I, I i'm serious i mean is there a reason that you see not to be positive between now and the end of the year and then heading into next as we've laid out the scenario that seems to be pretty positive for stocks that being the we'll go through it again the, the biden presidency let's say the republicans keep the senate you're going to have some stimulus you're going to have vaccine you're going to have what we think will be a dramatic improvement in corporate earnings. We're going to have what we think is going to be a dramatic improvement in CapEx spending from companies who now have more visibility than they ha will have had in the last 18 months. Thus, you could get higher stock prices. Yeah, I mean, I th you, you touched on it briefly. I do think the one, you know, the one issue in January that is going to be incredibly important from a fundamental standpoint, will be the Georgia election. I don't think we can just say the, House, the Senate will stay Republican. I think we need to wait and see what happens there. I do think that will be a speed bump in terms of how policy and what is implemented for next year. But I do think once that is behind us and we have an understanding, obviously portfolios, either way, you could, you could see a rotation somewhat on the, on the margin if, if, if it goes to the other side on the Democrats. 
but I think he laid it out really nicely is that we've had a terrible year economically. The stock market has had a wonderful year in general. You need to have the economy recover. And I just, when I go back in history and when you see unemployment declining, GDP increasing, um, good fiscal policy, a very dovish Fed, and now we have a Treasury Secretary that's also very dovish, I don't see a time period when stocks didn't go higher. And so I think you lay that out. I mean, that being said, if we go back and look at the tapes that we were here this time last year, I mean, we were all really bullish on the market. Maybe that was the right call, but boy, we had no idea what was coming in front of us, you know, for 2020. So I think my biggest reason to be nervous would be that everybody's bullish, right? Yeah. So just being a more skeptic and just being in this business for a long time. Yeah, no, I, look, I hear you. I mean, the, the fundamentals need to maybe catch up to the enthusiasm that exists and then hopefully exceed, right? We need the fundamentals to start playing along once you get into next year because there is so much enthusiasm about the year ahead. Our Mike Santoli has been taking a look at that as he discusses the rally entering what he calls the belief phase. Right, Mike? Yeah, I mean, Scott, for most of the past eight months, uh, the market was feeding off of just this reservoir of, of doubt and disbelief and, and confusion, really. I think a lot of investors looking at how the market was performing much better than the economy. And then there's a lot of hiding in, in the growth names. And it was seemed like, uh, you know, there were ways to explain it, but people were not fully on board. And I think you're now at a point where you can say uh, that in terms of flows into equity funds at a uh, almost three year high in the past four weeks, in terms of a lot of the sentiment surveys, in terms of the analysts upward revisions to 2021 earnings, the ratio of upward to downward revisions, that's also back to January 2018. So you're, you're heading back to this moment where uh, it's, it's, you're, you have a lot of company if you see the recovery coming and you think that it's playable in the market. It doesn't mean it has to end for that reason, but you have to, I guess, consider what's already been handicapped by the market, which is better than expected across the board. The economy's performed better than expected. Unemployment's much lower than it was than we thought it was going to be at this stage a few months ago. Obviously, earnings in the third quarter, probably the best beat rate and the percentage beat in history, or at least in more than a decade. We've already got that. So profits bottom much better, much higher than we thought they would. And then, honestly, two vaccines with 90% plus efficacy is, I think, an upside surprise. And yet the market in the last three weeks has, on an aggregate basis, had a little bit of a struggle. And so you have to be aware of what's in there, especially with these cyclical stocks. And it's totally sensible and plausible that they should participate more and there should be a broadening out of the market. But just look at the valuations already assigned to things like the industrial sector. It's not a secret to the market that we have a global recovery underway and that they should benefit. And so that's where I think a little bit of the push-pull is likely to come, uh, whether it be very soon or just, you know, sometime into next year. That has been the pattern. It's been tough to fight the seasonal strength in December, but then sometimes you have a give back uh, in the first quarter. Well, we know, we're, Mike, we're going to have a, a recovery. Yeah. We just don't know, you know, how strong it's going to be. Presumably, there's going to be an overwhelmingly large amount of pent-up demand. Yes. And pent-up demand for what is going to be an interesting question. It's another theme probably for next year, which is there's more than a trillion dollars in so-called excess savings, which is basically in aggregate consumers have this unspent trillion dollars they have now in total they didn't have six, eight months ago. Uh, that's going to go somewhere most likely, but we've been buying a ton of stuff right now. So if it mostly is about unleashing that spending uh, when the coast is clear on services, much more local spending, much more travel, uh, a little bit less in the way of stuff. And I think the stock market 
captures more of the goods economy than it does the local services economy. So then you have to you know, worry about well, who's got good and tough comparisons to, to, to last year and all the rest of it. So those are some of the issues I think we're going to have to deal with. And it's an unanswerable question exactly how much is priced in. Uh, but, you know, I, I was just writing about Disney. They have a bunch more debt. The stock's basically back at the highs. You know, they're, they're miles and miles from having their, their peak earnings level that they had a couple of years ago. What have you paid for right now? You put a Netflix multiple on Disney Plus and you're still trying to make the numbers work. So I think there are a lot of examples of, of good arguments to have about exactly what's already baked in. Yeah, appreciate it. It's an interesting read. Uh, CNBC.com. Mike, uh, thank you very much. That's okay. Mike Santoli. Joe, uh, so what do, you, what do you make of this? Um, you know, there's a lot of uh, hope and expectation on what 2021 is going to deliver. Is it going to live up to the hype? Well, we're going to need organic economic growth, and that's something that has been missing, uh, missing rather, over the, the last several years. It's been artificial economic growth, but you need a bridge for that growth in some capacity. And I think the December 15th, 16th Federal Reserve meeting is going to be incredibly important. Uh, the monthly asset purchases, do they potentially increase those from $80 billion above $100 billion? Asset maturity extension, that's another possibility. And even, Scott, loan guarantees that are provided to small businesses. Uh, the Federal Reserve is going to be integral here in extending this bridge that is very needed to get you to that potential organic economic growth. With that organic economic growth, yes, to answer your question, you're setting yourself up for a year where you're going to reintroduce globalization, you're going to reintroduce CapEx, which is going to be incredibly important once again, and you're still going to see a significant value and then algorithm, that software program relative to that piece of machinery or that airplane. So I, again, I don't move away from uh, allocating towards these tech companies. Yeah. Degas, I didn't even mention in my list of you know, reasons that people cite to why they are so positive going into 21. And I, I know somebody had, had mentioned it, but it is, you know, Janet Yellen is Treasury Secretary. And if Jay Powell stays as the chair of the Fed, uh, that's a fairly formidable combination that leaves things or guides things um, at the bare minimum into a pretty dovish place on the outlook for Fed policy and then spending stimulus and the like from from the government. Yes, yeah, Scott. So what we're looking at, obviously, you mentioned it, a dove. So it's going to be a lower for longer. So interest rates will stay where we are. And so that means that we're going to have an upside. And where the growth is in this economy is going to be still towards growth stocks. You're not going to be able to get yield from uh, fixed income. You're going to have to focus on uh, dividend yielding stocks and also growth stocks. And what we're seeing is that as, you know, we've talked a lot about the technology healthcare. But we're also seeing that it's going to be a growth in retail, retail shopping. I don't think we're going to go to the, back to the same way we used to shop. I think this has really changed that. And also what's going to happen is that those companies that have made the adjustment during this period are going to be very successful. And those are the type of business models that we're starting to look at going forward into 2021. And maybe one of the risks, though, Bryn, that we, we need to consider, and Degas just made me think about it, is when you're, you know, when you say lower for longer, yeah, sure, rates are, are going to be low, but they could be meaningfully higher than where they are now, assuming you get a robust recovery and you get a robust amount of spending from the government from stimulus. Rates aren't going to likely sit where they are now. They may not go to 
3% on the 10-year, but they may not be at 80 basis points either. Right. No, I mean, if we got an economic recovery that was much faster than anticipated because of, let's say we get more fiscal stimulus, let's say we get some type of other infrastructure package, plus the, the, the Fed's dovish, dovishness, and you have the economy improving, and let's say unemployment goes down faster than expected, I don't think the Fed would just sit there. I mean, they, Jay Powell said, you know, early, earlier in the year, I'm not going to think about thinking about thinking about rates for raising rates for a long time. That being said, you know, as John Maynard Keynes says, when the information changes, we change our mind. So I think you bring up a very good point as we do have hopefully a very strong economic recovery. I don't think you can just say that the Fed's going to sit on their hands for the next three years if we had unemployment come all the way back down, which would be wonderful. And so I think that's ultimately would give markets but a hiccup. And we'll we'll address that when when and if it I'm, happens. I'm not even necessarily thinking about, you know, uh, the Fed doing anything. I'm simply saying that if you have rates go up, you may have competition to certain sectors of the market yeah. that have benefited greatly from low rates like tech. Joe, you're selling Adobe. You're taking profits. You're urging people not to get away from the tech trade. But if you have rates creep up in, in any way, you may have people want to get out of some of these high growth tech names and then get into other areas of the market. Well, I mean, I will say one thing really quick on this. I think that it's all relative. So if you think that a 1% tenure is going to make people sell their secular growth names to go into the banks, I don't think that's, that's correct. And I don't see how you have the, the Treasury at zero, basically, T-bills at zero, and let's say the 10-year goes to maybe 1%. I still think you have extraordinarily low rates. And so I think it's all relative. And those long-term secular growth names are going to continue to be the leaders. And you can trade around the banks, trade around the energy names. But those long-term secular growth names, I think, have years to go because of this ultra-low rate environment. Whether it's 80 basis points or 1, I don't think it's going to 2, 2.5% two when the, when the T-bills are at 20, you know, 2 basis points. Yeah, I feel like, Pete, you're you're about to go big into the the reopen and the, you know, this reemerging and recovering economy play by virtue of you're adding a lot to materials. You're adding to energy. Yep. You've got calls in Vale uh, and some of these other names, Marathon Oil, Semex. You can go through those for us. And maybe there's a broader statement in in what you're doing in those individual names, you know, collectively taken. Yeah, no, absolutely right, Scott. And, it, and it's where we've seen, as a matter of fact, in the derivatives markets, we just continue to see uh, unbelievable amounts of, of, of positioning going on in a lot of those different areas. And that, that sort of spiked it with me because of the fact that I was looking around and I, and I liked the idea. I thought the materials had plenty of room to move. I still think there's so much more room, um, room to the upside. Whether you're talking about a Freeport McMoran, you, you just brought up a Semex. But we continue to see all kinds of different areas there, whether it's iron ore or steel, you name it. And I do think that there's a lot of different catalysts out there right now that, that, that are pushing the markets to the upside, especially in specific areas. And energy. Uh, you mentioned energy, but... I was looking through my portfolio. I actually recently, the one stock that I did add to my portfolio was ExxonMobil. I have not been in there for a while, but I added that one as well. So I've got both Chevron now and Exxon in terms of 
big uh, integrated names, but I've also got all those big beta names to the down, the, the, the other ones, Scott, the marathons, whether it's Marathon Petroleum or Marathon Oil. And uh, I just think that that is an area that's made a move, but I don't think that move is over. I don't think the energy move is over by a long shot. I think there's still plenty of movement to the upside. So yeah, th that's where it seems like over the last week and a half or so, I've just maintained and gained even more exposure to those areas because I think the combination of so many different things right now, and you guys were just talking about, you were talking about uh, whether or not, you know, the, the yield levels, Scott, where would that eventually start to affect markets and maybe people start moving and shifting around a little bit? I agree with Bryn. I think you're, you're going to have to see markets somewhere in the 2% or higher level before you start to see any of that kind of movement hmm. away from, uh, from, from the, the big names that they're looking at right now. And I'm sure Joe's decision on Adobe probably had nothing to do with with interest rates whatsoever he probably had a nice move to the upside oh, yeah. and was being very disciplined and decided to take it off so no, no question so, about that um, i don't think yeah you're right okay yeah no no i'm sorry to interrupt you pete or, or, or jump on you there yeah. um no I, I think it's a profit no. joe can tell us we have joe back his, his shot was frozen joe give us something quick on adobe then i want to talk more sector wise uh because of energy's big win this month 34 percent the best month ever give me quick on adobe though Sure. Sold Adobe and bought Salesforce. I talked about that with you last Wednesday. So trading technology for technology. Yeah, no, it makes sense. I mean, we understand that the taking profits and then putting money, as you said earlier, it's not like you're moving money away from tech into these other areas. You still like that no. group. Speaking no. of which, I mean, the, the group itself underperformed this month in, in what's been a good month. I mean, it's up 10 and a half percent, right? If you no one's going to sneeze at that. But energy is up 34%. Financials up 19. Rahel Solomon joining us now, taking a closer look at the big winners and losers of this month. Hey, Rahel. Hi, Scott. Yeah, you can't exactly call it a comeback, but definitely a strong attempt this month by energy and financials, both the worst performing sectors for the year, but for November, the best performing sector. So energy getting caught up in the sell-off today, but still poised for a 29% gain, still, however, down 38% this year. Uh, some of the best performers within the sector include Occidental Petroleum. That's up 75% this month. Apache is up closer to 58% this month. All of these names, Scott, however, still down between 47 and 60% this year. So perhaps still some room to run, as Pete mentioned earlier. Uh, financials also had a strong month, up 17%, as you just said, Scott, though down 9% this year. And industrials were also up 15% this month. Now for the worst performer for November, that was utilities finishing just about flat and down 3% for the year. Now, some of the biggest losers in November were names like First Energy, American Electric Power Company, and WEC Energy Group, all down between 5 and 10% for the month. Real estate and consumer staples are also among the worst performing sectors. Two standouts, however, Scott, Molson Coors and Constellation Brands up 23 and 32% for the month. So maybe investors there can drink to that. Yeah, yes, they can. Rahel, thank you. Rahel Solomon. All right, let's stay on the financials. Pete, I'm coming to you because there were some notable calls right. today uh, that, that are really interesting to talk about. And if you own Bank of America and if you own J.P. Morgan, I'm talking to you, the viewer. If you, if you own those names or you own some of these other names, you want to hear this. Bank of America double downgraded, Pete, to underweight mm -hmm. from Morgan Stanley. J.P. Morgan yeah. double downgraded to underweight at Morgan Stanley. You own Bank of America and yeah. J.P. Morgan. What's up with I that, do. Pete? I'm not, 
Well, I'm not overly concerned, Scott. I, I, obviously, they've been one of the, the, the areas of leadership when you're looking at some of those types of banks, the J.P. Morgan, the Bank of America. Quality names, I think, that have moved to the upside for the right reasons. They didn't move as much when we actually went through the earnings cycle as I would have liked to have seen, and at least it wasn't sustainable because they pulled right back again. But now they've made this great move to the upside, specifically J.P. Morgan, because forever, Scott, we were talking about how it had a magnet towards $100 a share. Well, it finally broke away from that $100 level and started skyrocketing to the upside and that's been a nice nice move but I think the reality is when you go back to that earnings and you see record earnings yeah record earnings and yet a lot of people were focused on a lot of the different areas of the of JP Morgan that didn't necessarily hit what people were looking for well the reality is I think that these banks still have plenty of room to the upside whether it's JP Morgan or Bank of America I love their call on Capital One by the way because I think that's one of those names where because of the fact that they're so much into the credit card, I think it's over 60% of their revenue, um, this is a name that's a little bit different type of bank. So the movement to the upside and the price target that they have on there is pretty extreme. So I think that there are a lot of names that really moved well. I think JP Morgan obviously being one of those names, and it finally moved, made that move to the upside. I don't think it's over though. So I disagree with this double downgrade. I still think that there is movement. And when you look at their balance sheets, we all talk about it all the time, they look great. And you look at the cash flows, it looks great. So I think that they're still in and very well positioned as we go into 2021. This is, Joe, a repudiation of big bank stocks. I don't know how else to call it. Double downgrade, double downgrade. And oh, by the way, the one you own, one of the ones you own, Goldman Sachs got downgraded to, to uh, underweight. So they only had to do a one level downgrade. And that's to underweight nonetheless. Is, it, is this group no touch? The, the, the banks, the big banks. Okay, so we're, we're going to take Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley, extract that from the big banks, put it aside. Those are the names to own. M&A, trading, wealth management, they've got some positive momentum there. Specific to money center banks, J.P. Morgan, it's had a nice recovery. Bank of America, Citigroup, it's had a nice recovery. Now it needs the participation from a steepening yield curve. Why did and they, down, also they downgraded Goldman to sell, though, Joe? They're not extrapolating it out like Joe, like Joe, Joey T is. They're not doing that. Okay, so <laughs> they put it right I, in the basket and they threw it you. overboard. Guess what? I'm going to whisper something to you. I think they're wrong. Okay? I think they're wrong <laughs> in their downgrade. And I think those that have downgraded Goldman Sachs as it has risen here towards 235, they continue to be wrong. So they're not the last. They weren't the first. There have been very many that are going to bet against the Morgan Stanley and the Goldman Sachs. I understand that. I'm going to stay with the position. It's working. But again, for money center banks, it's all about the steepening yield curve. We need that. And we also need the blessing that comes from President-elect Biden's administration, from Treasury Secretary-elect Janet Yellen, that financial regulation is not going to be obstructive in the way that it's going to be presented in the uh, coming administration. It's amazing, though, how quick, I mean, one month's performance makes everybody think that the bank stocks have been working. Uh, I'll give it to you. I mean, I look at Wells Fargo up 30% this month, Bank of America 21.5%, JP Morgan 22, Goldman Sachs, Joe 24. You say, hey, these bank stocks are pretty good. Unfortunately, when you go out a little bit further year to date, Bank of America is down 18.5%. J.P. Morgan down 14%. Oh, by the way, Warren Buffett and, the, and those guys over there said uh, we're basically all out. Uh, and Goldman's kind of flat. It's up 2% to an S&P tape. As we said, that's up 
10.5%. I understand why when you talk financials, the conversation ultimately goes to fintech. So I'm going to take it there. Because Bryn, you bought PayPal. Degas recently bought PayPal. Bryn, you first, then Degas. Yeah, so I think uh, it's, a, it's a great discussion. I do think that, you know, PayPal should be in that banking, that, ba that banking discussion. And when you look at a catalyst, when we take a new position, like what's going to be the catalyst to drive it higher? And I think that when, when PayPal announced last month that effective immediately, um, PayPal users, over 340 million of them, can now buy Bitcoin, that is a game changer. And overnight, they created a new revenue stream. And just to give you some perspective, if you look at Square's earnings this last quarter of Cash App did two billion in revenue, one and a half billion was Bitcoin, that transaction cost. And Cash App has 30 million users. PayPal has over 300 million. And so I think that they can instantly create a new revenue stream. And I think what are the early days of, of Bitcoin and blockchain. And so I think it's a catalyst that over the next year, that's going to go to, you know, to their bottom line. And so we want to own it. And we think that that gives it the ability for multiple expansion. And more and more people are wanting to have their money sit at a Square or a PayPal. And I think the Bitcoin um, gives, gives PayPal more of a, a tailwind. And it's also trading a, a cheaper a cheaper price than Square, but we like both. Degas, give me something quick, if you could, on PayPal. Then I'm going to split for yeah. a couple minutes. Yeah. Yeah, PayPal, like I said before, that's the direction the market's going to. What I like to say about the money center banks, think about brick-and-mortar banks. Who goes to them now? And so I agree with Brand. The movement is towards the PayPal's, MasterCard, payment systems like that, that's where the market's going. Okay. We'll take a quick break. We'll come back. We have a bullish call in an industrial stock. It struggled this year. It has seen a surge, though, uh, of, of late, 35% in the last month. We'll debate it next in our call of the day. Old Dominion Freight Line was built on keeping promises. With an industry-leading on-time delivery record and low claims rate, we keep promises better than any other LTL freight carrier because we treat every shipment like it's our most important one. Visit ODFL.com to learn more. Welcome back, everybody. I'm Sue Herrera. Here's your CNBC News update at this hour. At the Supreme Court, conservative justices are grilling Trump administration lawyers over plans to exclude illegal immigrants from the 2020 census count. Justice Barrett questioning why this should be the first census where all residents are not included. New York's Governor Andrew Cuomo initiating emergency measures to free up hospital resources for COVID-19 patients. Elective surgeries are being halted in some counties. Hong Kong Disneyland is temporarily shutting down again because of the pandemic. This is the third time the park has closed due to COVID-19. And this was probably a pretty easy choice, unfortunately. Merriam-Webster says the 2020 word of the year is predictably pandemic. 
COVID related, related rather runners up included quarantine and asymptomatic. Also in the running, defund and antebellum. You are up to date, Scott. That's the news update this hour. I'll send it back to you. Right. I have a different word to describe 2020. Yeah. I can't say it, though. <laughs> you know, so do I. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate my job too much to say it. Me too. Sue, thanks. You got it. All right, Sue Herrera. We do have some bullish calls in the industrial space today. GE, that's right, General Electric. Name the top pick at Barclays and United Airlines outgraded to outperform at Ray J. I do want to start, maybe focus, focus exclusively on GE. All right, I've got a hater in Pete. He has GE puts. I've got a hater in Bryn. She won't touch this thing. Joe, he's a hater. He's not going near GE, he says. Degas says, not in your life am I going near this stock. What's up with this, Pete? <laughs> Scott, I wouldn't call myself a hater anymore. I was a hater for a really long time, you as puts. you know. You I came on puts. The, yeah, but you're right. You're 100% right. But for you're so the biggest many, hater on the panel. Scott, for, <laughs> for for at least a year, maybe even more than a year, Scott, as you remember, stock went from 29 all the way down to five or six dollars a share. And along that way, we had option buying and they were buying puts to the downside. And we highlighted this time and time and time again. I have my last residual puts left. That's okay. That's what happens. Eventually, the music stops. And the music stopped for me. I own January 5 puts. If it had any value, I'd be out of those. There's no reason for me to hold on to these puts. I don't think we're going back down there to test that level. Now, that being said, around $10, I think we've seen enough out of GE to the upside because they still struggle with a lot of different issues, Scott. When you look at their debt levels, that's still amazing. I mean, the fact that they do have some free cash flows, that's great. And a great CEO has done a very nice job, that's great. But the problem still remains, they do still have incredible amounts of debt, and that's something that's going to be hanging over there for a long time, in my opinion. Stephanie Link says you're wrong. She says you're wrong. <laughs> well, <laughs> you're wrong. We'll see. <laughs> I'm channeling Stephanie Link. You're wrong. All right. Why doesn't anybody own United like Airlines? Why doesn't anybody own any airlines? On my list, I don't have anybody. United got upgraded today, outperform at Ray J. I, I thought, Degas, that we're having 2021 is going to be a new year. People are going to get on planes. They're going to be anxious to travel. Why doesn't anybody want to get on this plane? Well, I, I think it's maybe a little bit early. Uh, you know, we're looking at this, uh, this space also because I think there will be a recovery in 2021. And, you know, we like some of the... Um, the uh, airlines that are domestic focused and also um, the more not non-business focused uh, airlines such as uh, Southwest, Alaska. Uh, I think those are some airlines that are doing really well domestically. They have, I believe, um, 95 of their flights are focused on domestic. So I think that's going to be the recovery. We don't see a lot of international flights. And so that's going to benefit those airlines and also the business uh, uh, rider, flyer. We don't, we're not seeing that person jumping on that plane, going to these business meetings uh, in 2021. That's going to take a while to recover. So we like the, uh, uh, the uh, airlines that are focused, not so much on the business uh, flyer. Okay. We'll take a quick break. For, uh, for more on today's biggest analyst calls, you can check out the write-up on CNBC Pro. You can find that at CNBC.com pro. Coming up next, the big ETFs to watch on this final trading day of a great month for stocks. First, though, a check on S&P sectors today. 
All right, so we're going out with a whimper. Big deal. It's been a great month. 36.11 where the S&P is. That's a loss of about 27, three quarters of 1%. We're back after this. What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones, our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. B2B selling is tougher than ever, and we feel your pain. If you're struggling to close deals, consider giving LinkedIn Sales Navigator a shot. This sales intelligence platform helps professionals like you engage high-value customers, drive higher revenue, and increase sales performance. Sales Navigator also guides you in targeting the right buyers, highlights key signals such as job changes or which accounts you should prioritize, and uncovers hidden hot prospects so you can find those buyers that are most likely to convert. Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date first-party data, enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash report. That is linkedin.com slash halftime report for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash halftime report and get started. And welcome to the ETF portion of Halftime Report. I'm Bob Pisani, closing out one of the biggest months in history on a big value rally here. Our guest today one of the experts, Gerard O'Reilly, co-CEO and CIO of Dimensional Fund Advisors. Gerard, welcome. You've been studying this whole growth versus value story for decades now. What's been going on this month? Banks and energies rallying big time. Is there really finally evidence of a true cyclical rally, of a true value rally? Or is this just another one of those head fakes we've been seeing for the past 10 years? Thanks for having me on the show, Bob, and I agree with you. Great month for value investors, no doubt about that. Bob, you know at Dimensional we like lots of data, like you guys. We like to look at our data. And when you look back at U.S. data over the past, let's call it 100 years, we see that value stocks have on average outperformed growth stocks by about 3 to 4% a year. And in years when they have outperformed, that level of outperformance has been on the order of 10 to 15%. So it's not uncommon to see months, quarters, years where value outpaces growth by wide margins. And that's just what we saw in November. Yeah. Let me ask you about the ETF front because you've been very busy there. You have a significant mutual fund operation. You've got nearly $600 billion in assets under management, but you're now becoming a leader in converting some of your mutual funds into the ETF space. You did that a few weeks ago with two of them, including the International Core Equity ETF and, of course, the U.S. Core Equity. Can you explain what's, why you're transferring to ETFs, number one, and what's the philosophy behind, let's just do the U.S. Core Equity Fund here, where you're showing some of the big holdings in that fund? Yeah, Bob, we launched uh, two ETFs this month, and they were uh, new ETFs. We plan to convert tax-managed funds, six tax-managed funds, into ETFs in the course of 2021. And we were very excited about the launch happening on November 18th 
all went uh, swimmingly well. Uh, those ETFs, they combine all the expertise and knowledge that we've accumulated over the past 40 years when managing equities. So they're market-wide uh, ETFs, the two that launched this month. That means they buy large cap and small cap stocks. Uh, they overweight value stocks and small cap stocks. So again, it's been a good month for small value, outpacing large growth by 10 to 15 percentage points. Uh, and we take a kind of an active implementation approach. So I think that what's uh, new and unique about these ETFs is they're launched as active transparent ETFs, which means they have a lot of the benefits of indexing, uh, low cost, low turnover, good, highly diversified. But then we have an active implementation that helps manage risk and keep us focused on those stocks with higher expected returns day in, day out. Yeah, I need a quick answer. Is 2021 finally going to be the year when the mutual fund industry sees a lot of conversions into the ETF space? You started it. Is 2021 going to be the year the mutual fund industry finally moves a lot of money into ETFs? We've started it, Bob. I think there's a great place for people's uh, mutual funds and people's portfolios along with ETFs. So I think that both will have a very successful year in 2021. Okay. We're going to continue our discussion, folks, with Gerard O'Reilly on ETF Edge, 1 p.m. Eastern Time. A lot of interesting stuff there. He'll be joined by Tom Lydon from ETF Trends. More on the value rally and a lot more on the investment philosophy behind Dimensional Fund Advisors. They've got heavyweights like Nobel Prize economics winner Eugene Fama behind them. That's ETFEdge.CNBC.com. Halftime Report. We'll be back in 30 seconds. All right, it's time for Unusual Activity. Pete, tell us what you got. I'm going to start off with some AMD, Scott. And this is a name that's hit so many different times, I can't even tell you. The month of November, probably about 15 different bullish hits. Four in the last week, two today. As a matter of fact, today what they're doing is very aggressively 4,300 of the December 98 call. Stock was trading around $88 at the time. They were buying the 98 calls in December for about a dollar and a quarter. So that was pretty interesting to me. They also were buying a one-week out option as well. So very, very active in AMD, expecting some upside. This is a stock that at 74 just a month ago jumped all the way up to where it is now, now betting on the fact that basically running up towards $100 a share. So that was pretty interesting. Now I've got gap stores for you. Some pretty aggressive buying going out in time a little bit, which is unusual. But if you take a look at this chart this year, Scott, unbelievable move. Stock went all the way down towards 7, got all the way up towards 20 a month ago, got to 26 going into earnings, then pulled back significantly. Now they're buying the January 22 calls, about uh, 7,500 of those calls for a buck 30. So pretty aggressive buying there. They're also selling upside and selling downside puts. All that really means is a very bullish three-way trade, but the focus is on the 7,500 Jan 22 calls. I bought both of these. I'm in AMD. I'm also in these, and I'll be in these all the way up to that January expiration because I think Gap Stores definitely has some upside still in front of it. All right, good stuff. Thank you, Pete. Meantime, gold is on track for its worst month in years. We'll find out how to trade it from here. Coming up next. It's time now for the futures outlook. Gold hitting its lowest level since July. On pace now to close out its worst month in four years. Let's bring in Scott Nations of Nations Indexes for more on the move, which is somewhat surprising given what the dollar has done. You would have thought gold perhaps would do better. That's exactly right, Scott. The dollar index down two and a half percent this month. And you would think that that would help gold a little bit. But let's face it, who needs a safe haven if the pandemic is over? 
And if you still want a safe haven, you're not looking at gold. Let's face it, you're looking at Bitcoin, which is up about 20% today, up 20, uh, above 20,000 earlier today. So I want to be a seller of gold. And Scott, I want to use the micro e-mini contract. That ticker symbol at the CME is MGC. I want to be a seller of that micro e-mini contract, the February contract. I want to sell that at 1800 Let's let it come back to us a little bit. We don't want to sell gold in the hole. Target to the downside, once we're short, would be 1680 That's about where the market consolidated in April through June. And my stop's going to be 1860 up to the upside. Uh, we're always going to trade these with a stop. That was the bottom several times in September, October, and November. $10 per point for the micro e-mini. So we're risking $600 to make double that $1,200. And we're thinking about getting out of our investment bunkers as well. Final. Yeah. Final. All right, Scott. Appreciate it very much. Scott Nations, thank you. We'll take a break. We'll come back. We'll do final trades next. All right, final trades. First, though, business with you, though, Joe. Tell me quickly, you sold Caterpillar. Why? I did. Too much industrial exposure. I recently added Cintas and Honeywell. Fully agree with Degas. Industrials, that's going to be the sector in 2021. But I had to take down the exposure too much, Scott. Okay, give me a name for final trades, please. I love Pete's AMD. I'm going to actually go in and buy that. Ah, okay, good stuff. Thank you for that. Degas, you got a name for me? Equinix, uh, Global Data Center, uh, REIT, is doing an incredible job with the surge and also it's reducing its carbon footprint. Okay, good stuff. Just to name Bryn, then just to name Pete, please. Bitcoin. Oh, okay, 20 grand almost. <laughs> Pete. Vale, I'm going to give you Vale. Okay, good stuff. Thank you, guys. Thanks for watching. The Exchange is now. You've been listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast. You can always catch us live weekdays at 12 Eastern, only on CNBC. The spirit of performance defines Acura, and now it's electric. Introducing the all-electric ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. While what powers their cars may change, the energy that makes Acura never will. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system and up to 313-mile range on a single charge and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is everything they said electric could never be. It was built with the driver in mind, just like Acura has been doing since the beginning. We could talk all day, but the only way to experience this electric performance is to drive it yourself. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com.